Chats from the Blog Cabin. Your favorite podcast is here. Welcome back to another episode of Chats in the Blog Cabin. You know the show where I virtually invite people into the Blog Cabin to chat about life. And today we're chatting all about adolescents and adolescents who struggle with navigating change, overcoming anxiety. And during the pandemic, you know, a lot of them, a lot of adolescents had to go through change and anxiety. And I'm joined by Erica. Erica wrote this amazing book called Chicken Little, The Sky Isn't Falling. Whoops, it's moving a little bit. Um, and we know the story about Chicken Little and Chicken Little as a childhood story. The sky is falling. The sky is falling. So, um, Erica, introduce yourself and tell us what you do. And then we'll do, get into about the book. I'm a social worker and a psychoanalyst. Um, I'm a parent guidance expert and an author. And so I write books um, that help guide parents. Uh, my first book that I wrote was about zero to three and guiding parents. And this one is about adolescence. And both books really address the issue of creating a foundation of emotional security for your children um, that helps them to build resilience and deal with the adversity that comes in life. Um, yeah, that's who I am. So why did you decide to write this book? Because I know anxiety seems to be like the key phrase right now. You see, it's like it's a hot topic. Everybody's talking about anxiety and we hear a lot more about anxiety than we used to. Well, I mean, anxiety is fear and there's there's much more fear around than there ever has been. And um, as I say in the book now, because the book now is about building resilience and emotional security in, into your adolescence. And we know adolescence is longer than we thought. It starts earlier. It starts at nine and it ends at 25 from a neurological perspective. Um, but we know that in that period, uh, you know, uh, parents have a great influence over their children to create emotional security that protects children. We call buffers children from stress and buffers children from, you know, fear. And so um, we're experiencing more fears because the environment is a scarier place and um, can't always control what's in the environment. But what we can control is what we give our children in terms of their foundation emotionally to help them to cope with the environment in the future. So what, how, what can we as parents, because my girls are 19 through 26, and we talked a little bit before we came on about how all of them seem to have that anxiety of growing up. I think social media adds a lot to the anxiety as well. But what can we as parents build as a foundation for our kids? Well, I mean, this is the way I would put it. There's a lot expected. Much more is expected of kids today than was expected of my generation. Um, and and we, we give them less and we expect more. I guess that's how I would put it. In general, not everyone. Um, there's a lot of healthy kids out there too, but there's a lot of kids who, you know, from a very early age, um, they, they experience more stress. And because we as parents are very distracted, we have our own careers, we have our own 
um, desires, our own needs, um, and society encourages us to pursue them, particularly as women, society mm -hmm. encourages is encouraging of us to pursue our individualism. We're a very individualistic society too. Um, you know, our children are getting less of us, unfortunately, and but but we are expecting more of them. And what I mean by more of them is, you know, the academic pressure that we put on our children um, is just, it's over the top today. Um, we, have, we give them, in many ways, we give them so many choices. Um, you know, in my generation, we didn't have as many choices. And sometimes choices are good and sometimes they're overwhelming. Um, there's social media pressure and social media is... Uh, as we know, there's a new study out now that says that Facebook and Instagram, um, you know, have been devastating to young women's self-esteem, you know. Um, and we know that social media puts a kind of pressure on them, you know, focusing on fame and, and celebrity and, and money. Um, they have global warming threats. They have fears for the future and stability, um, fractured communities. So, you know, all of these things are just too much for kids. So what we can give kids is the question because we can't, unfortunately, we can't remove the, we can't remove social media. We can't remove the global warming threats. We can, as parents, remove some of the academic pressure, but some of the academic pressure doesn't come from us as parents. Sometimes it comes from the schools or their friends, right? Um, or social media, they have to go to the best of the best and, you know, the best schools. And as parents, I encourage parents to think about, um, to think about what their desires are for their children and kind of get a grip on those, right? Be very self-aware and know how much of your children's ambition is theirs and how much is yours for them. Um, that's a very important distinction. So, but the point of writing these books is that there's a lot that parents can do. There's a lot they can't do. There's a lot they can do to help reinforce their children so they can withstand the storm of adolescence. You know, adolescence is in itself a kind of trauma. I mean, we don't think about it. We think, oh, we all go through it and it's not a big deal. You know, it's hard, but adolescence, even if it goes well and the children are healthy, it's a kind of trauma. There's a lot going on. So let's talk about the anxiety. Are you, are you seeing more cases with anxiety in boys or girls in adolescence? So, yeah. So the statistics are crazy. You know, Melissa, you, you read the book. So you know that I have a lot of research in the book. Um, and, you know, the research says that one in five children in America are going to have a serious mental illness. Um, one in five, 20%. And I th actually think it's higher. Um, I actually think it's closer to 40%. Because if you look at the statistics on reported mental illness versus mm -hmm. non-reported mental illness, um, one in five is reported. So that means there's a lot of kids out there who are suffering in silence with depression and anxiety, ADHD, uh, behavioral issues. So, um, yeah, it's a big number, right? Suicide rates in America have tripled in adolescence in the last decade, tripled. Mm. So, you know, as we say, Houston, we have a problem. We have a very big problem. Um, and 
you know, I, again, I think we're, we may be taking it more seriously now is what I'm thinking mm -hmm. because COVID wasn't the cause of a lot of, you know, certainly didn't cause a lot of the anxiety and the depression. It exacerbated the anxiety and depression mm -hmm. that already existed in a lot of kids. Um, it sort of was the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, mm -hmm. um, where they just couldn't, you know, they couldn't hold it together any longer. Mm. Do you also think it's because with COVID, more, more families were home together that parents are able to see things that are happening and they were able to see the signs, whereas before our lifestyles were so busy, 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 on the go, on the go, on the go, that they were kind of like, they saw it, but they weren't really attentive to it. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a yes, brief commercial. Yes, I do think that. I okay. think that, um, I, I think that is. I think we're kind of got a little bit of a lag here. So we're going to take a brief commercial break and then we're going to come right back. And hopefully there won't be a lag when we come back. Chats from the blog cabin. Hit subscribe and don't miss the next episode. Chats from the blog cabin. Enjoying this episode? Leave a review now. Do you feel betrayed by life, your body, okay. or by someone that you love? You are not alone and you are not weak or overly emotional for feeling the way that you do. Betrayal is one of the most overwhelmingly painful experiences to navigate because it strikes at the core of who you are and what you are worth. No matter how gutted you feel, there is hope. You can flourish, not in spite of your experience, but because of it, I know. After 23 years of marriage, my world was shattered when I found out that my husband had been cheating on me with five different women for 15 years. I lost everything that day, my identity, my worth, and the future I had worked so hard to create. While it was a long and arduous journey back to myself, today I know who I am what I want, and I am happier and more confident than I ever was before. I've got what I call naked self-worth, which is the ability to just see, know, and love yourself for who you are, not for what you accomplish or for who you are in relation to others. No matter what has shattered your heart, if you're ready to get clear on who you are, what you want, and to learn how good life really can be, then life choreography is for you. Even if you feel too old or are too busy because you have kids at home and you're in charge of everything. Life choreography is a comprehensive five-month, five-step program that empowers you to strip out of your labels, roles, and scripts and to reveal yourself as you are, not as you think you should be. To learn more, go to nakedselfworth.com and download your free guide that shows you how to untangle yourself from the past, reclaim your sexy, and start re-choreographing life on your own terms so you can love and be loved 
for exactly who you most authentically are. And we're back chatting with Erica, who wrote a the book, Chicken Little, um, The Sky Isn't Falling, Raising Resilient Adolescents in the New Age of anxiety. I'm just going to read a part of the book that really resonated with me. It's like the first chapter. It says, we are asking children to handle more stress, more, more stress, more stimulation, more pressure, more choices, and more decisions without giving them a secure foundation of support, emotional security, and a real and meaningful connection to cope with the emotions that come with these challenges. Then we wonder why our kids collapse when the emotional, social, and hormonal storm of adolescent hits. Being a teenager in the age of anxiety is scary. Being a parent of a teenager is scarier. And being a parent of three teenage girls, I would add, is even scarier. Because you know that when the hormones hit in the teenage years, it is scary. Being the mom of a teenage girl during hormone years is really scary. So when you add the, the anxiety and the mental health on top of that, because as I mentioned before and... Um, and previous episode on mental health, my daughter, actually, we had a whole panel on this. My middle daughter has ADHD. She has bipolar tendencies and she has, was dealing with depression. And my oldest daughter also has anxiety. And for them, that just seemed like their hormones just made their symptoms just 190, 200% worse because of it would go up and down. You never know. So let's talk about adolescents and the hormones and how it just exasperates their the symptoms of anxiety well i mean maybe what we need to talk about too is stress so mm -hmm. you know what, what stress does to an adolescent's brain so because of the hormones that are sort of um you know because of puberty and the hormonal shifts um stress is is amplified so it is a very difficult thing uh, because you know whether we like it or not we put a lot of of, of a pressure on our teenagers to be successful to uh, to be successful in school you know even how we define set you know success to get good grades to get into good colleges to play sports to you know to be at the top of their game to have you know, what I say is in my generation, not much was expected of us at all, you know, and, and as a result, we kind of could get through, not everybody did, but more did. Today, too much is expected of them. They're expected to be adult-like. We sort of adultomorphize. It's a word I sort of made up, but we, we project on to, to, to teenagers and adolescents that they're adult when they're not. Um, and Basically, what stress does to your brain as a child um, is it, it sort of gets a part of the brain called the amygdala going. The amygdala is a, uh, a small almond-shaped part of the brain, very old, primitive part of the brain. And it regulates our uh, stress. It helps to regulate our stress. The problem is many children didn't go into adolescence with a secure enough attachment or foundation. Mm -hmm. And um, the amygdala uh, is, is, comes online or becomes active too early. So that stress regulating part of the brain is activated very early, right? If they separate too young from their parents, they're put in daycare with strangers, if 
they don't have enough uh, physical and emotional contact with their parents in the beginning to buffer them from a lot of that stress because that, again, that stress regulating part of the brain is supposed to be very quiet in the first year. Um, that part of the brain gets overactive too early and then it kind of burns out and shrivels up and then isn't useful later on. So that part of the brain isn't successful at regulating a lot of these adolescents' stress. Um, and then we're not sensitive as parents in terms of how much stress we are imposing on them. We expect so much of them, but we're not really sensitive as to, to the cues. So part of the reason I wrote the book is to help parents give them knowledge, is to know what to look for in terms of symptoms, signs that your child is too stressed and that rather than pushing forward, you need to pull back. So what are the some of the symptoms and signs if we can look at and see when your child is too stressed that, day? okay, maybe right now is not the great time to push them. Let's just take a break and just relax. Yeah. Any Anything that has to do with sleep, eating, any biological functions, you know, if your children are sleeping more, if they're sleeping less, if they seem, um, uh, if they're eating more, uh, if they seem to be emotionally eating, or if they've stopped eating, if they're socially isolated or more socially isolated, meaning if they're retreating from their peers, um, if they feel, uh, sort of out of control. So what we do know is that stress makes the the brain vigilant. So one of the things that people don't know is that ADHD is not a disease. Mm -hmm. ADHD is a symptom of the brain's response to stress. It's how the brain um, behaviorally expresses that it's under stress. It becomes hypervigilant. It's part of our fight or flight system. As human beings, we were in an evolutionary way, equipped to deal with stressful situations, right? If a, if a saber-toothed tiger is chasing you in the old days, um, you, you would either fight the tiger or you'd run, right? So we know that a lot of kids are more aggressive in school. They're experiencing behavioral problems where they can't control their aggression. That's the fight part. Um, that's the fight part of the vigilance and being under too much stress. The flight part is expressed in distractibility and attentional issues. That's that's the flight part. Um, so we know that that's a sign. If our children are starting to seem distracted and not able to focus, then we need to look at holistically the kind of pressure they're under that might be causing that. Um, are they away from us too many hours of the day? Are they put in too many activities? Are they in classes that are too challenging for them? Might they have a learning issue, which is un, sort of unknown or undiscovered, which makes school harder and more stressful for them? Do we need to get that checked out? Uh, might they have you know, vision issues where they can't see the blackboard and it's stressing them out? So in, in a way, ADHD is a really important, I, I don't think of it as a thing in and of itself. And I certainly don't encourage parents to medicate the symptoms away. I encourage them to think about what's causing the symptoms, meaning think of origins of things. As a society, we don't like to think about the origins of things, but it's really important to think, what is the stress that's causing my child's brain to go into this vigilant, defensive, I'll call it a defensive mode. Now, you just mentioned something, you said medicate the symptoms away, because I know a lot of parents choose not to do the medication route when a uh, child is um, 
diagnosed with any type of illness, but some parents are like, well, let's give it a try. And if it doesn't work, then we'll try something else. Now, what is your stance? Is your stance like 100% no, don't do the medicine or should we at least try it? So my stance isn't 100%. My stance is that medication can be very useful, but it's the last stop on the train, not the first stop on the train. So the first stop on the train, so you never want to medicate away symptoms. You know, there's a whole controversy now about um, when your child has low-grade fever, Mm -hmm. should you give them Tylenol or Advil, right? And the reason for that controversy, I'm using a metaphor, is that the symptom is actually very important to help to to deal with the illness, right? Um, And the symptoms that come with ADHD are what we call signal symptoms. They, They signal us that something's wrong. So just getting rid of the symptoms doesn't mean that what the underlying causes have gone away. So we want to deal with the underlying causes. We want to get our child to a really good talk therapist, uh, a child and adolescent specialist. Make sure that it's child and adolescent, not not an adult therapist, because they're different. Um, And um, you want to get yourself into some parent guidance too. And usually when you take your child to a really good talk therapist, uh, a feelings doctor, um, they also do some work with parents to help them to help their children. So that's what I do. I do a lot of parent guidance. And um, that's the first stop is talk therapy to see if you can get to the bottom of what's causing that child's stress. And usually it has a lot to do with, um, you know, psychosocial, what we call psychosocial stressors, family issues, um, conflicts in the family transitions that a child is going through, moving to a new school, moving to a new town, illness or death in the family, um, marital conflict. I mean, I could go on and on. If you think about all of the things that cause us stress as adults, Mm -hmm. they're amplified in children. What I say is children and adolescents have very, very sensitive um, constitutions. Their brains are, they're very neurologically fragile much more so than we have ever known before. So technology now has allowed us to see just how fragile their brains are. Um, They're very fragile in what we call the first critical window of development, which is zero to three, uh, which is in my first book that I wrote. And and they're, they're equally fragile in the second critical period of development, which is nine to 25 or adolescence, because something is happening in the brain at that point, which is the brain is reorganizing and pruning. Um, and really the brain doesn't stop developing until about 25. And that critical window of development means um, the environment has a greater impact on that child. And the environment is school and social environment, but it's you as parents. So you, you, have, a, you have a lot of power. You have a lot more power than you think. By going into therapy yourself, you can influence whether your child continues to be under stress and continues to express these symptoms or they worsen, or you can be a change maker for your child. And I'll say too, it kind of shows them that it's okay to be in therapy because I think a lot of times when you, someone goes into therapy, there's a stigma around, oh, they're in therapy. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, what's wrong with them? Oh, they're in therapy, you know? And people are like, they're like, what's wrong? You know? And it's all like, wow. 
people don't want to talk about that. But now it seems like it's almost like it's okay to talk about it because the stigma is kind of being erased because I think this generation that's coming up, the generation of my girls, mm-hmm. is making it okay for it to talk about because they're more open about how they're feeling. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the better parts of COVID is that, you know, mental health services, which are still not that available in person in many uh, parts of this country. And sadly, I advocate for more mental health services in schools, in small communities. Um, But mental health services are now more available, at least digitally. You know, Mm -hmm. so there's something that has freed us. So we no longer feel in parts of the you know, country where, you know, going to a therapist meant you were crazy. I mean, literally people would say, I'm not going to a therapist. I'm not crazy. My kids aren't crazy. Um, And my experience as a therapist is really crazy people um, don't go to therapy, but people who are really sensitive um, and, you know, open-minded and evolved do go to therapy when they, when they have struggles. So, we want to teach our children um, and we want to, as parents, model that, um, that when we are struggling, it's healthy to reach out for help, right? That idea of self-sufficiency and I can do it on my own and um, independence, you know, mm-hmm. is actually quite unhealthy. That, that what we know is that the healthiest ego, the healthiest um, person is someone who has flexibility, who can lean on others when there's someone there to be leaned on. And when there isn't, can flexibly lean on themselves. Mm-hmm. The ability to go back and forth fluidly between being able to lean on others when you need someone uh, is very healthy. Now, you keep mentioning that adolescence is up to age 25. When that, when did they change that? Because a lot of times it was like, oh, you're 18, you're good, you're yeah. done. Um, that changed in the 90s. So the 90s uh, were was the decade of the brain. And it's because the technology was discovered. Um, Psychoanalysts, we always knew that adolescence wasn't in this small defined period, but then we could see it, meaning we could see in these brain scans, um, what they call fMRIs or functional magnetic resonance machines. And they basically allow us to see activity in the brain. Um, And so, uh, and there's many other things that we use too, but, but the idea is that the technology in the 90s allowed us to see that the brain was still shifting and reorganizing and pruning. Um, So what we say is that by the age of nine, between zero and nine, actually, and this is interesting, between zero and three, 85% of your right brain, or what we call your social emotional brain, the part of your brain that's responsible for emotional regulation, resilience, distress, by by three years of age, 85% of that brain is developed. Uh, And then between three and nine, the other 15% develops. So by nine years old, the brain is, is, you you have all the cells there, uh, the synapses. The problem is that you have too many. And then between nine to 25, there's a pruning, like pruning your bushes out in your Mm -hmm. yard. There's a cutting back of what you don't need and a shaping of an architecting of the brain that happens between nine and 25. So for the first nine years, you'd say, you as a parent are helping to create the connections, creating, creating, building connections. Um, it's why I say parents have to be as physically and emotionally present in the first three years 
as possible, right? Nobody, we didn't talk about that before, um, which is, you know, when you leave your baby in daycare at six weeks or three months with strangers and when they're in distress, you know, they're one of five or eight children and they're crying and no one can, you don't realize that that, that kind of stress actually has a great impact on that baby's brain. So for the first nine years, we are, we are building and then from nine to 25 as parents, we are responsible for helping to architect what that brain will look like going forward into adulthood. Wow. Because, I mean, you would think about it, you wouldn't think that zero to three, you would think that, that those years would be the years they wouldn't even remember because they're so little. But then you realize what an impact. Wow. 85%. 85%. So, and if you're not there and you're not part of that process, then that child's brain actually develops quite differently um, in very extreme situations. So, of course, we're not talking for the most part with you or anyone who's listening to this podcast about extremes, but there are books written about very extreme forms of uh, neglect where babies are put in institutional care um, in Romania, Romanian orphanages, where the brain actually is shrunken, stunted, right? Mm. We're not talking about that. In this case, we're talking about brains not developing in the same way, as if they have uh, a primary attachment figure there to soothe them when they're in distress from moment to moment. Now, mind you, a lot of, if you miss the first window, which is zero to three, mm -hmm. the reason I wrote the second book is you have another chance. All is not lost. So now you know between 9 and 25, you as a parent can still do a great deal of good in terms of providing that child with emotional security. Now, I was one, I have a question. Now, let's say, for instance, like the very first child you work, but then the second child you're like, okay, I'm not going to work when it's born because I want to stay home. And obviously you can't afford daycare for both kids, you know, because daycare is outrageous anyways. Mm-hmm. Will that change the effect of the way that the second child, their brain develops because the first child was in, wasn't in daycare, but they had someone take care of them that it was more of a one-on-one -on -one situation? So what I say, so there's two different questions there. First, if you ask someone who their first child was in either daycare or in care with others, um, versus being around, I think for the most part, they'll say there's a difference. Um, and it depends on the kind of care. So that's to answer your second question. Um, if you, uh, if the best is you, right? The best is you being there, being as emotionally and physically present as possible. The next best is a family member or someone who has a very similar kind of investment in that child. Um, and who can soothe them in distress from moment to moment the way you do, same style that you have, and is going to be in their life forever. That could be a grandmother or an aunt, could be a spouse, right? Um, then next in line would be a one-on-one -on -one surrogate, and that could be a babysitter. Um, and if you can't afford a babysitter, because that babysitter is going to be consistent, um, is going to be uh, um, not transient, that person's going to be with them a long time, hopefully, right? And, and is going to be consistent in their care. And they can form a, a kind of attachment to that person, not the same attachment as they have to you. 
Um, so that would be the next best thing. If you can't afford one person, you know what they do in California is what I recommend, which is sharing a caregiver. If you share a caregiver with another family, sometimes it could be cheaper than daycare. If you each have, if you each have two children, um, believe it or not, or even if you each have, if you each have one child or, or you each have two children or one of you has two children or one of you has one child, you're still the numbers are still better than if you put your child in institutional care. Show me a daycare that you can afford that is less than five or six to five or six children to one caregiver. What I say wow. to parents is imagine you as a mother taking care of six children, babies, uh, and imagine how overwhelmed you'd get. And imagine being able to soothe their distress from moment to moment. And then you realize, oh, my God, I could never do that. They can't do it either. Mm -hmm. And so, right. So sharing a caregiver would be the next best thing to having a single surrogate caregiver. And the one that I never, ever promote is daycare. Please don't put your children in daycare unless you absolutely positively have to. And if you do have to, then look for a ratio of no more than three to one when a child is um, uh, one to three. And when a child is under one, a ratio of no more than one to one. And it doesn't exist. Wow. I mean, because honestly, luckily, my mom took care of my oldest. But it's amazing how you keep talking about how zero to three, zero to three, you can raise as a parent, you can raise your children the same way, but they can turn out differently. And they can all exhibit different types of things at the same, you know, like, all three of my girls have anxiety, even though they were all raised like the youngest one seemed we seemed to be a little bit more lenient with them and not have as much pressure on her. Because as first time parents, you put a little bit more pressure on the oldest because you really don't know what you're doing to begin with. And then as you get your rules, get a little bit more lax as the second and third come along. So let's talk about first time parents. And then once you get have more children, how you seem to kind of the pressure seems to come off a little bit for the, the other children. Well, that's often the way, right? As first-time parents, we are more anxious ourselves. And, and when we're anxious, you know, we, it's called generational expression of anxiety and depression. Um, one thing I encourage people in the book, parents in the book to, to be is self-aware. So the more self-aware you are, if you feel anxious, you're going to, um, you're going to make your children anxious, basically. Um, if you suffer from depression and it's untreated depression, then you're, it, it's generational transmission means that that will be um, projected into your, your children may also feel depressed along the way. So it is very important to be self-aware. If you're anxious, if you're depressed as an adult, get help because that's going to help you not to pass that on to your children. Um, you know, you think about it, that we are the greatest part of their environment. So if their environment does not feel secure, if their primary, I'm going to use the word primary attachment figure, primary caregiver, because sometimes it's the dad today. Usually mm -hmm. it's still the mom, but sometimes it's the dad. And whoever is actually responsible, the go-to person for that child to feel emotionally secure from moment to moment throughout the day. And it should be the same person, right? Um, the idea of having multiple attachment figures sounds a lot better than it actually is, because the truth is there's still one primary person that's the go-to person. Mm -hmm. um, the more 
calm and centered um, and emotionally present and physically present we are for our children, uh, whether they're the first or the last, the more internal resources we give them as they go into adolescence to, to cope with the adversities that are going to come. And again, there are more adversities. I mean, there's just much more uh, that is stressful for children today. Um, so I, I'll use an example from a radio host that did an interview for me. Um, uh, Michael Smirkanish interviewed me and he said, he told me the story. He said, you know, when I was a kid, I got a haircut. And it was a really bad haircut. And I went home and I cried because um, I was afraid the kids would make fun of me at school the next day. And they did. They made fun of me. But in a couple of days, it went away and, it, you know, I could cope with it. He said, I can't imagine what it's like with social media, because not only then do you have just a handful of kids making fun of you and laughing at you or dealing with whatever adversity you have. You have the whole school knowing that you're you know, a target, or even more than the school, the the, the adolescent community at large, right? Mm -hmm. So it's just, just take that as a smidgen of why it's much more stressful for them. Academic pressure, I mean, I didn't even go look at the colleges I applied to. I just applied to two colleges and I applied to them without going to look at them. And my parents weren't that involved. You know, it was because in those days, you know, and I was a beast, you know, I mean, like, who, you, you know, who thought about that stuff? So, and now today, you know, um, it's terrible. So, so if you just think about the pressure on these kids, which makes it even more important that we ourselves are not anxious as parents. Now, let's talk about two. I have actually had some of um, friends who actually try to live through their children like they would do everything with their kids like they would go concerts with their kids they would go to college tours with their kids they would actually even become friends with their college kids professors so they can get in good with them I mean, it's almost like they're living vicariously through their kids like their college years when is that time to say okay it's time to stop and let your kid learn how to function on their own in the real world yeah, it's a good question because attachment is very, very important for emotional security. Being there when they're in distress, when they're little and through adolescence, that's what the second book is about. We have to be there during adolescence to help them process their experiences and their emotions regarding their experiences. If we're not there enough, we miss that, right? I use a term in the book, when the door opens, literally and figuratively, when the door opens and they're ready to talk to you, if you happen not to be there, the door closes again. And you have to wait until the next time the door opens because their defenses are such that they're only going to be open on their terms and on their time, not yours. So um, and so that's a really important thing that that, you know, we 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 have to be present throughout. I mean, it's not just in, in the early years, um, but but kids are really um not resilient. I mean, they are just not nearly as resilient as we think. Um, but, but you asked about separation. So attaching is very important, but equally important is the ability to let go. And we begin to let go from the moment they're born. Believe it or not, the process of separation um, is the process of seeing your child as an individual, not you, separate than you, different than you separate interests than you, separate ambitions than you, separate desires than you. 
that ability to see our children as individuals is the beginning of separation. Um, and so that's a very important process as they go on into adolescence that we can, that we don't judge the differences with them, that we accept their differences, whether they're differences of desires or dress or how they, how they appear, but also identity issues, um, the music they listen to, the friends they have, um, the gender that they identify with, the sexual uh, orientation that they identify with. It's all part of allowing your child to not be you. It's, um, it's me, not me. And that separation allows them to blossom as human beings and accepting whoever they are. That's really critical that we want to as parents control who they become. And we can't, you know, um, we can only give them our value system. Uh, we give them um, love and, and attention and we make them securely attached and we are there when they're in distress and we give them our value system and then they have to choose for themselves. But that idea of merging with your child and not letting them be separate from you can also cause a great deal of anxiety. Um, we don't want to push them out and make them be self-sufficient um, too early, but we slowly want to wean them so they can function out in the world without us. Yeah, because I see a lot of people, a lot of kids um, that when they go out in the real world, they're not, they can't function and they end up back home because they, they don't know what to do. They don't know. They don't know how to handle a job. They don't know how to handle their money. They flunk out of college because mom and dad have helped them with their assignments when they were in high school. Right. Well, that's part of parental anxiety. So uh, for instance, I have without giving, I'm not giving anything away. I'm not betraying confidence because I see so many families like this, but I, you know, I was seeing a family uh, this week and they, you know, it was a family that um, was worried about their child starting a new school and worried about that, that child's executive functioning, that, that they wouldn't be able to email the professors. It was a high, high school student wouldn't be able to email the teachers, wouldn't be able to stay on top of their schedule. And so this parent was um, basically following their child's email to see if the child had emailed the teacher back. And I said, you have to stop doing that. You have to let them take control of it. If they need you, you have to tell them that you're there for them. If they need help organizing their time, but that if they know that you're looking at their emails, then they still feel you are in control. And you have to let them fail if necessary. You have to let them fall and make mistakes. You know, if you're any sport that you do, uh, skiing is the metaphor I usually use. Because when you learn to ski, you fall down a lot, a lot. Um, and that's how you learn. If you don't fall down and you hold yourself like this, you never learn. You have to fall down. And parents are so anxious about their children falling down. They're anxious about their children um, not succeeding. And so if they just can do it all for them, get the, do the papers, get the grades, you know, and you've got to let your child be, you've got to let them make the mistakes and, and fail if they have to, so they can learn. Um, you can support them. You can help them. You can guide them if they need you. You can, you know, so what I encourage this father to do is get off the child's email, let the child email the teachers or not, and then learn from that and come to you and say, 
I'm having some organizational issues. Can you teach me how to organize things so I can do it on my own? That would be a better use of a parent's time. Yeah, I so agree. So our time is almost up. Is there one little last nugget that you want to leave people with? Well, again, I, I'm going to say what I said earlier, which is be there as much as you can in adolescence, both physically and emotionally, because if that door opens and you are not there, you're going to miss many opportunities um, to help regulate your child's emotions. Um, and, and emotional regulation is basically processing their feelings. You know, how was your day? How are you feeling? I can see that you're upset about the test that you took. And if you try to do it on your time as a parent, it never works because, as I said, has to be on their time. So just being present uh, uh, as much as possible emotionally and physically and accepting your child, accepting whoever your child is and loving them unconditionally, that takes all the pressure off your child. If they know that no matter who they are, no matter what they identify as, um, that you'll love them and support them and always be there for them. Yes. And I want to thank you so much for coming on. Tell people the name of your book again and where they can find it at. The book is Chicken Little, The Sky Isn't Falling, Raising Resilient Adolescents in the New Age of Anxiety. And you can find it on Amazon. You can also look at my website, www.comisar.com, and you can buy it at any of the, you know, Barnes and Noble, Amazon on my website as well. And where can people find you on social media? Uh, Erica at Erica Comisar CSW um, and Facebook is Erica Comisar LCSW and Twitter is at Erica Comisar CSW. And you have an Instagram as well? Uh, I do. And it's uh, Erica Comisar, my name. <laughs> so guys, I will put everywhere where you can find the book as well as where you can find Erica. And I'm sure if you have questions, you can drop Erica a note Absolutely. on her website and she will get back with you. Um, I will say this is eye opener for me as well. And I thank Erica so much for coming on and for chatting with us today about this. And I'm sure I'm going to have more questions soon on this. <laughs> thank you, Melissa. So, um, as always guys, um, I want you to keep chatting and most importantly, be blessed. Have a great day. Chats from the blog cabin. We not only have voices for a podcast, but also faces for YouTube. Don't miss your next episode.